WPSL Port St. Lucie. It's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. We Are Just Christians. We're certainly glad that you've tuned into the show today. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. In just a moment, I'm going to be giving you the information as to how to reach us here to have a conversation with us, and we would really appreciate that. Uh, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And uh, our partner today, as usual, Gary Jones, how you doing? Uh, I'm here today, Mike. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, we're both here. So, uh, uh, if you're a regular listener, you know that we were not able to be live the last two weeks. I had a, two or three things come up, and we ended up, even though we tried to do a live show last week, it didn't work because of of uh, connection and distance problems, but uh, I had a scratched cornea on a Saturday before the show two weeks ago, couldn't see a thing, couldn't get out, um, was unable to do the show, and I found out about that same time that all my, all of my taste had disappeared, sense of smell had disappeared, even though I wasn't sick at all, so I suspected I had COVID, which I did, and apparently I did, but I wouldn't have known it except for my Except that my shredded wheat tastes more like cardboard than you can imagine. Even bananas didn't help because I couldn't taste or smell the bananas. So it was pretty miserable for a while. But anyway, uh, we're all well now. Missed last week because I didn't want to get out. I was still on that edge of, you know, quarantine or isolation. And so I didn't want to take any chance with anybody. So we stayed in last week and last Wednesday also. And so any event, here we are back live, and everybody seems to be doing pretty well, at least uh, for a couple of old guys. But Gary and I are glad to be able to bring you this show each week. The church sponsors this show. We don't really bring it to you, but we do the show. And it's a live call-in show, so we can engage with our audience. And it's about the idea of recreating the first century church here in the 21st century. And we believe that not only can be done, but it should be done. It's what the New Testament wants us to do. Uh, Jesus said that we are not to add to or subtract anything that's written in the Bible. And that the words of the apostles are such that he says, don't even believe an angel if they come and tell you something different than what I said. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, which tells me we certainly don't have the right here in this century or any other to alter God's word or add to it with man's traditions, human thoughts, human ideas of what people think is best. We need to try to figure out what the New Testament says, what the Bible says, as closely as we can and make the application to today in as fair and clear a way as possible. And that is, that'll start with, uh, well, I don't know, I'm not going to put these in any priority, Gary, but start certainly with how we conduct our worship and what the church is about and, and, and the roles of the church leaders such as elders, deacons, and whatever, instead of human traditions about those things. Church structure is denominationalism, even a Bible idea, which it is not, but we've accepted that in our, in our century. And it, then it goes, uh, then it also includes my personal life. How do I decide what's right or wrong, what I should be doing? Do I get just get to read the New York Times and or let some professor tell me or the CDC tell me what I should be doing or my physician, as they say, or should I be looking to a permanent source like the New Testament? And that impinges on so many cultural issues since in our lifetime, Gary, the sexual revolution has encompassed everything in society and all around the world. And uh, it also includes then how to be saved. What's the, what's the real gospel? 
Is the gospel about health and wealth, or is it about man being a sinner and needing redemption through the blood of Christ? Is Muhammad a good way to find salvation, or Buddhism, or is Christ the only way? Now, these issues all are important to everybody that we're talking to this morning, even if we don't agree about them today. We believe there's only one way to come and find any unity on those issues, and that's through the New Testament. That's the premise of the show. Go ahead, Gary. I'm sorry. The Word of God is the center. It should be the focus of our life. Uh, we we can't we can't hope to please God without it. And and I've brought up this passage many times. I'm going to do it again. You uh, you're not going to get away from this. At least for me, you should underline this passage in your Bible. It's John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 8. And it just it says in one sentence everything I think that Mike just said. Jesus says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Now, how could it be any more important than that? i just leave you with that question. Yes. Um, I, I got the indication here that we're not even connected anymore, Gary, to okay. the radio show. But I think we should, uh, you can continue if you want to continue a few more thoughts about that. Let me try to to reconnect here, but it's not, not having much luck at all with that, um, and see what we can do here, okay, anyway, I have no idea how that happened, but uh, I guess we're, I guess we've, uh, okay. I guess we're back on the air again, I don't know, is that true there, Ray, sorry about that, I have no idea what happened, I know when I came into the building this morning that, uh, our entire internet was shut down. It was uh, not working. I think I rebooted everything, got it going, and it was working for a while. But in any event, uh, Gary was talking about John 12:48 about John the fact 12, that the Word of God is going to judge us in the last day. And I realize that's a frightening thought to most people, and it ought to be. But in Christ, there is no judgment, meaning that when we're in Christ and following His will, this judgment of God will be turned away from us. Well, in the verse right before So that's what this show is about, turning right. you toward God and his word through to Christ. Right in the verse before that, he says, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the reason Jesus came. Then he says, The words that he has spoken will judge us in the last day. We need to pay attention to what he says. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes the point, that if you don't receive him or receive his words, you don't receive God in any way. Right, right. And it's that, that's the question. See, that's always been the cultural issue with every human culture since the beginning. Who is Jesus Christ, and what's the relationship that he has to the government, to the citizens, to the world, to all of us? And secular society, human society, is always sought to put someone else at the center. And even religiously, even, um, even sometimes among those who call themselves Christians, Christ is removed from the center and replaced by philosophy or by psychology or by some kind of watered-down Christ. That's the issue always before each of us. Uh, it's the same issue in the garden God gave Adam his word, and Satan came along and said, Has God really said that? You know, did God really say, has God indeed said, he says it in the King James, that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? 
So Satan is always putting in our mind this idea. Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Or that premarital sex is a sin? Did God really say that drunkenness is a sin? You don't really believe that, do you? You know, this is what Satan is always telling us. Uh, or that that uh, we should be able to be greedy and uh, take what others should have and be greedy with our possession. Did God really say that I have to give to others and love them like I love myself? Really? And this is the always, Gary, the emphasis. Well, Did God indeed say such and such? Well, he, let's look at the Bible and find out. That's what this show's about. Well, exactly right, Mike. And, and basically one of the favorite things I hear when people don't like that, he says, well, that's your version of it, or that's your interpretation. That's your interpretation. That's your interpretation. And yet in Ephesians 3, <clears throat> in verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Right. Uh, Paul expected them to read. In, in Colossians, he expected them to read these, these letters in the, in the different churches. Uh, basically in 1 Thessalonians, he said that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Right. Uh, reading is important. And I just, Mike, how many times, let, let's just go back. How many times did Jesus say, have you not read? Yeah, uh, oh, it's five or six times. He, he expected them to, or, or how readest thou in the King James? Sometimes it has that. He expected them to to be able to understand his word. Now, we're not saying, in case you're new to the show, that it's easy to do this particularly, or that you can just pick up the Bible and begin to read, and it all is, God just It'll somehow reveals it to you immediately. There's effort involved. There's learning and growth involved. But we certainly believe and teach that we can do a simple reading of the word without our presuppositions interfering too much, or at least recognizing what they are, and come to some understanding. Usually people can do that, and that's why they come away saying, did God really say that? that that's yeah. the alarm bell, isn't it? Because yeah. when we read it, there it is, and then we have to say, well, did God really say that? And sometimes we need to understand he's maybe, talking maybe about... It's the, simple uh, to understand. It just may be kind of difficult to do. Right, and sometimes it, it does take an understanding of metaphor, uh, metaphorical language, symbolic language, whether it's poetry, whether it's a history, other, part, you know, other things have to be brought into play. So it's just like we read anything else. You know, if you... If I, I watch, uh, go listen to news sometimes and watch different uh, shows here and there... And I think that people in Europe, one thing they can't believe is that we have a right to bear arms in this country, that individual citizens have a right to defend themselves and bear arms, even against a tyrannical government. They go, does your Constitution really say that? Well, unfortunately yes. for them, the Constitution does say that. Now, now, if we want to in the Constitution, we have means in place to make the change if we want to change it. The problem is you and I don't have the authority just to say, well, I don't agree with what the Bible says, so I think I'll do this. We need to, we need to understand that that's what it is. I, I've told this story before, Gary, and I really didn't mean to go here. We got off, as we do sometimes in the beginning, took a veer into this. But it's an important area to consider when we talk about what this show is about, what being just a Christian is about. It isn't about learning the catechisms and learning all of that. But told this story before. I took uh, classes to finish my 
<clears throat> bachelor's degree some years ago um, down at Barry University, and many of the professors were adjuncts from University of Miami. And, and Barry is a Catholic school, and uh, at least that's what it is nominally. It's a Roman Catholic university, which didn't bother me because I was trying to get a college degree. And, and in the event, this was back in the 80s. So I had this woman professor who was a former uh, nun on modern theologians. And so we're, she's always saying outrageous things. And she'd make us sit in a semicircle, which I hated. I just wanted people to, I just wanted her to tell me what she knew, let me evaluate it, test me on it. But she had to put us in a circle like we're as a, like it was a self-help group. And um, so she says, makes a statement one day. Now, now this class, as I mentioned before, was filled with uh, Cuban exiles, other people who were in the airline industry in Miami trying to get college degrees. They had training in other countries or other places or didn't finish their degrees like I hadn't. And <clears throat> they were just trying to get through this. So they had to take social studies classes, like a theology class or religion class. or a, a, what were they? It was probably under the, in philosophy. In any event, she made the statement that you can, be, you can be a good Muslim and still be a good Christian. You can be a good Buddhist and be a Christian she says. And she goes on. And I raise my hand. I'm on the front row, of course. I ra I'm that kid. Oh, ooh, 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 ooh. You know, that kid in the front row, that's me. So I'm a grown man now. And I said to her, uh, I just looked at her and she, she said, yes, uh, Mike. And I said, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. That's all I said. Those exact words. John 8, 24, something like that. And she says, she looked at me, right, straight. no other conversation took place. And she said, well, you can interpret it that way if you want to. And I, this is the point you're making about, you know, how yeah. you interpret. I said, well, ma'am, I said, I didn't interpret anything. I just quoted what Jesus himself said in the Bible. And I said, and all these, all these other people here that you're talking to in this classroom probably haven't read that much of the Bible, and they're going to go away thinking that Jesus said you can be a Muslim or a Buddhist and you're good to go. But Jesus didn't say that. So if you want to tell them that it's your opinion that you can be a Muslim or a Buddhist and be okay with God, that's your opinion. You have can express that. But don't sit here and then pretend that Jesus said that because he didn't say that. And then you hear all the murmuring because most of the kids in there were Catholic too. Most people were Catholic, and from my talking with them later, and they were astounded, uh, but they didn't know enough to challenge what she was saying. Yeah, I would, I would have. Quoted, she got really upset with me. I would have, I would have quoted what Jesus said: "No one comes to the Father but through but, me." But there's five or six things I could have quoted. That's what came to mind, and I didn't even say, "Now you know the Bible says this and this and this." I didn't give her anything. I just quoted the scripture to her, but the scripture itself contradicted. What plainly what she was saying. Now, here's the thing. Well, before you go on, I, you mentioned about six times about what Jesus said. <clears throat> Mike, I counted 14. Oh, have you not read? Have you not yeah, read? Yeah. Uh, or have you never read? Or have you never read in the scriptures? Or have you not read what was written? Uh, you know, phrases like that relating to have you not read the book of Moses? That's Mark 12, 26. You know, if if our listeners, well, I, you know, I, we'll run through these. There's Matthew 12, uh, 3, have you not read? Matthew 12, 5, have you not read in the law? Matthew 19, 4, have you not read? Matthew 21, 16, have you never read? 
Uh, Matthew 21, 42, have you never read in the scriptures? Matthew, you know, 14 times. And, and there may be more that aren't expressed in those exact words. You're just exactly. doing a search I'm on those looking. words. And that's out of the New King James Version. Now, there's another about six or eight times that it's mentioned in the epistles. It says, uh, like Ephesians 3, uh, 3 and 4, which when you read, you may understand my knowledge. Right. Uh, Colossians 4, see that it is read also in the church at Laodicea. First uh, Thessalonians 5:27 that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Uh, Acts 8, where uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the scripture. Second uh, Corinthians 3, uh, the same veil remains un, uh, unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, talking about the Jews. First Timothy 4. You know, it just keeps going on, Mike. Right. It's it's you know altogether I think I counted something like 26 or 27. Don't hold me to the exact number, but that's close that, that these right. references have. So reading the scripture is tremendously important to understand what is in it. Right. And, and that is what guides your life. Not, not your feelings, not your own wisdom, but the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given to us through the writings. I'm, I just, I just well, I, I'm glad you count them up. I didn't know. I really didn't know there were that many. I knew there was plenty of them um, that are there. Now, some of those would be well, some parallel are, accounts from one gospel to another. Luke 10, 26. Right. Uh, um, basically, Matthew 4, 4. Go back and pick that one. Well, up. well, they still are still there right. in the context for us to read. Right. Mark 7. Um, you know, you keep Mark 11. Luke 20, you know, it just, it just, the list goes on. Now, we got a text about this, a couple of them, in fact, from John. <laughs> he says, um, the way Koine Greek was written, it was meant to be read out loud. Um, I, yes and no, I would say this about that. Koine, or common Greek, is the common everyday language that people spoke in society in New Testament times. In the Greek world, which also included the Roman world as well as Palestine at the time of Jesus. And it was common language. It wasn't what they necessarily wrote classical book uh, Greek manuscripts with. That was Homer's Greek, classical Greek. And Koine Greek or the New Testament manuscripts were puzzling for a long time to scholars because they had different words and different grammatical structure than classical Greek. So they wondered what kind of language it was, and it turns out that it was the common Greek of that time. And it was meant to be read out loud in that, uh, you know, literacy wasn't as high. It prob I think from what I've read recently, literacy was higher than people think it was. Uh, but on the other hand, there were many people who could not read, didn't have any real reason to read that much. And so their contact with literature was somebody reading it to them. Now, uh, they also, it also is true probably in the ancient world that reading silently to yourself wasn't something that was <clears throat> as common as reading something out loud. So we watch TV together, and my wife and I read the closed captioning silently to ourselves. But <laughs> the, um, uh, back then in the, in, when families sat around or other people were gathered together, someone would often read out loud to the whole group. It didn't mean that nobody else could read. It just meant that's what, meant that's what they did for entertainment or to, to all be on the same page. It was their version of watching a TV show. 
someone reading something that had been written. And so, yes, the New Testament was meant to be read that way. When Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, give attention till I come, give attention to reading, he was probably talking about that kind of reading. Make sure that you teach the brethren in the churches to read the scriptures out loud to each other. And so it wasn't just that one person could read and nobody else could read, they had, but they had someone stand up front and read the letters that had been given to them by the apostles. Yeah, and that, that helped the people who could read as well as the, those who couldn't read. That's 1 Timothy 4.12 or 4.13 you're talking about. He says, 1 Timothy 4? I think I said 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now, yes, and we don't know the percentages of people that could read, but but here's the thing, other thing I want you to remember about those verses, about the reading that we've been mentioning here, or when Jesus would say, have you not read? It's obvious in the context of the passages that we've quoted here that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and scribes who obviously could read. That's what they were known for. And he was telling them as teachers of the law, have you not read? And I would say this to these people walking around calling themselves reverend everywhere and high pastor so-and-so. Have you not read what the scriptures say? You see, that's the problem. They, they're the scholars, and Jesus was challenging the scholars of his day who could read, and were not illiterate, but they hadn't understood what they were reading because they were always reading to prove what they wanted to prove and not to do a simple reading and say, indeed, does God say this? Well, let's find out what he says. So we've been through this before on this show, but that's the premise of how it can be that we can say we want to encourage our listeners to be just Christians, to find out what that means, to find a church that you can go to where the Bible is simply read and where treat creeds and traditions and customs and human opinions, e- even the common current liberal religious opinions are not what's being taught as the, script- as the scriptures. But the scripture itself is studied and understood and, and people are encouraged to bring their lives in conformity with that scripture. That's what this church is about, as imperfectly as we may do it from time to time, perhaps, or you may think we do it. That's the goal. And I'll tell you something. Whether we do it perfectly or not is not the point. We think that's the right way to approach it. And uh, you certainly aren't going to get there. You're not going to get where, where God is pointing you in the Scriptures by ignoring the Scriptures. And the fact that people disagree about the Scriptures certainly doesn't mean that you're going to get uh, you're going to get to understand the scriptures if you ignore that. I don't know why people think that since you and I might disagree that that absolves them of responsibility for figuring out for themselves what it does say. At the very minimum, God is going to hold me accountable for what I do know, right? Right. At the minimum, he's going to hold me and you and Gary and our listeners accountable for what we do know. And if we won't do what we do know, uh, we're certainly going to be in trouble when it comes to what we don't know because well, we haven't what, paid what attention. What say in one place? Let not many of you become what? Teachers? For they will, yes. For we will receive what? A more strict judgment. And what he's saying is you need to be careful what you teach. It needs to be what the scripture is. 
and at, to the, it, at least to the best of your ability. Right. Now, now John texts back in um, that's, that we take our modern literacy for granted. Yeah, yes, but there are, you know, literacy is not a condition that if you aren't literate, you're somehow free from knowing what God says. That makes it hard to take ourselves back into the first century. Perhaps, but once we understand that, uh, we try to project our society onto them. Perhaps that's true, but I'll say this, and this is something that I, I want to, I'm only partially disagreeing with John there. We do need to pay attention to how we project our society back onto the first century. That's understood, but I'm going to I'm going to say part of my presupposition that I think I can sustain is that the scriptures are written in such a way that they can be applied in modern society, um, and they can be understood as to how they ought to be implied. We just don't like what the applications are. Well, there's but a, we also uh, go, yeah, but there's let me another aspect of this that I, I'd like to bring up. I I, I don't want to you know put away what you're talking about, Mike. But there's something else I've read historic accounts. Basically, as as the church progressed, what we don't realize is those people, maybe not all of them could read, but they could be read too, and a lot of work was done with memory. Well, yeah, yeah, their memory and their critical thinking oftentimes are in, and that analysis was just as good as ours. Or better, in or, some uh, cases. Memory was probably better than ours. And that's the point I was going to go to is, that, here's the thing you got to remember, <clears throat> that apparently God himself, through the Holy Spirit, thought that the way that he wanted to convey his word to that generation and to this generation was, was by written, writing it down in words. Was through the written word. Right. He didn't leave drama. He didn't leave artistic painting and watercolors. He left words. He didn't leave it up to just human beings to come up with whatever they wanted to and pass it on through the memories of and the thought processes of Aquinas or whoever it may be. He wrote it down through these inspired men, and then their job was to, as Paul told Timothy, to pass this on to other faithful men at 1 Timothy 2, 2, that they would be able to teach others also. And so this process is that faithful men take the words that are written and they pass them on to faithful men. If the person can read, they pass on what it can be read. If that person can't read, they faithfully pass on what the reading says and they read it to that person. So I don't think this is a big problem. I don't think the upshot of this is not as some, and I don't know that this is John's point, detector, but I, I'll just say this. It is the point of a few people who talk about this. Well, that just means that we really can't know what the Bible says and that they couldn't know it either. So we're pretty much free to do whatever we want to today. Well, I don't think that is at all the point that, that the Gospels would make of the fact <clears throat> that people needed to read the Word. Whether it was to be read to or to read it themselves, they were to take that Word. And the point of Jesus saying, have you not read? Here's the point. He's saying God in the past wrote down in words that can be understood by human minds what he wanted you to do and to believe. He expects you to read or understand those words and do that today. How many generations was it between Moses and Jesus? 1,500 years. And he yeah. still said, you need to have read what Moses wrote and be doing that today. And, and that's the point 
for our generation about the reading of the scripture or whether you're having somebody else read it to you. You be careful when someone else reads it to you that they read you what the Bible says and not what they think it says, but what it says. And that's fine. People will give their opinions about it. We give our understanding of it. But in the end, you and I will be held accountable for what well, the scriptures one, one actually things, say. You know, I, I know I have said, and I think you have said before, before the group, uh, to the effect that don't take my word for it. Here's what I see. You go look and understand. Go look it up. And that's why we give you the references to these scriptures so you can write them down. We're not the only ones that do this kind of thing, but that's the premise of being just a Christian. John also texts in, many things were put in poems and songs to help people remember and pass it down. And that's right. One of the most important psalms is Psalm 119. It's 150 verses, if memory is correct, somewhere around there. And it's an acrostic poem. So above the first eight verses is the letter Aleph in Hebrew. And all those verses in Hebrew start with our letter A, or Aleph. And then Bet is the next eight or ten verses, is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And all of those <clears throat> verses started with that letter. So this could be memorized by both adults uh, and children. And, then, and there are apparently some of these in the New Testament too. And uh, these are not just New Testament uh, approaches. I want to read Deuteronomy 31 and 11 to you. This was an instruction, basically uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's second giving of the law, something like that. Yes, the second. And Do it. Basically, 31, 13 says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, in the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. They were, every time they gathered at some these things that they were instructed to gather, they were supposed to read this law to them. That's in uh, Deuteronomy 30, 31 and verse 11. Mark. Yes, and that's at the end of um, that's at the end of the um, period of, of the wilderness wandering. What am I right. trying to say here? And uh, <clears throat> Moses was, in a sense, uh, that was an instruction. That was a law from God. They were he was reading the law to them again, and we yeah. find this when. Ezra rediscovers the book of the law, and I think it's in Nehemiah 8. I'd have to look it up yeah, here. It's Nehemiah uh, 8, 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's Nehemiah 8, 8. Now, now let me, I want to go there. Uh, Gary, read, um, read a couple of verses before that. Uh, where it's, I don't have all of them. Oh, okay, hang on here. Let me, let me read the whole thing here. So all the people, it says, Nehemiah 8.1, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in from the water gate in Jerusalem. And they told, this after they had rebuilt the wall. And, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So go get the book. And they brought it out. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now I'll make this point: they had they had abandoned the law of Moses. The, there weren't copies of it everywhere. Only this one that was apparently at that time that they had right there handy, and so the people didn't know it. They weren't reading from it. The priests weren't, and the ones who did read could read didn't have it, and so they were disobedient to God. Then it says, and he read from the 
from it in the open square them in front of the water gate from morning till midday before men and women and those who could understand and all the ears of the people were attuned or attentive to the book of the law. And so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform which they had made for this purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mathahiah, Shema, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah, and his left hand, Pedadiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Rashim, ah, read all these names, Zechariah, and I can't pronounce all of them easily. I have a, I have a, a, um, a damaged cornea, Gary. I'm just going to use that as my excuse. I had a little trouble reading this morning, actually. But And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then it says he lists these same men again. And all the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. And so they read directly from the book, distinctly from the book, I should say, right. in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Right. Now, uh, I'm having trouble, so I read directly instead of distinctly. But the point is, the people knew that this is something they should pay attention to. They wanted to hear it. They read it clearly, and then... Translating from the Hebrew to whatever version of Hebrew they were speaking at that time, there was probably a generational differences. They made them understand what it said clearly. Now, this is the duty of a preacher or a teacher, not to use his theological degree to make his pronouncements and tell you how. You don't really have to do what God said, but that to simply to re, un, make you understand what God said. And that's the point I was trying to make with this lady down here, this former nun. It's one thing for you to disagree with what Jesus says or to tell these people, here's what Jesus says, but I don't agree with it. I have no pro I have a problem with that, but I don't I wouldn't try to interject that and think that she's doing something dishonest. When she says, this is what Jesus said, but I think that's incorrect. I think this is correct. She should have had the courage to do that instead of pretending that Jesus somehow said in his book, in the writing, that you could be a Muslim and a good Christian at the same time. Yes, that, that was my objection to that. But I'll say this, Mike. That would not have had the effect that she desired well, of course. among those people who... We're not studying. She we was trying know. to use her authority as a religious figure to distort what Jesus says and put words in his mouth or take words out of his mouth. And that was the thing. You're correct. That's why I objected. She could have said that I don't agree with Jesus. She would have probably lost credibility with some of those people that she didn't want to. So I consider it almost a point of dishonesty, disingenuousness to do that. And when you hear these preachers today who will not accept what Jesus says, what the, the implications of the New Testament are too much for them, too politically incorrect or whatever it may be, uh, they're being disingenuous with you. Uh, and I don't mean by that that the harshest position is always the correct position. But I certainly think that they ought to be careful about putting words in Jesus' mouth or taking them out of his mouth by what they say. And it's done all the time. It's done all the time, uh, all across the country, the world, every day. 
and, and, and the purpose of preaching is to read distinctly or clearly from the book and give the sense to the people to help them understand the reading. Not to understand your philosophy or my philosophy or somebody else, but to give them the understanding of the reading. And unfortunately, what, what happens a lot of times, Mike, is basically you can take one passage, and if you take that one passage alone, you can convince yourself of a meaning that is not there because there are other passages that weigh upon that same subject and all of them have to be taken together. And then yes. that's what happens. That's And, and people use that. I, I have a few people that I kind of follow on YouTube. Uh, one of the guys that I really liked for a while, uh, he, he deals with what you were talking about, self-defense and things like that. But he has gotten off on this premillennialism. Uh, and he's been using his YouTube to teach premillennialism. And basically what I'm thinking is... Well, that's because it looks to him like the end of the world is going to happen any day. Well, so, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, yeah. But basically what what's happening is the scriptures that he's ignoring is is just... I, 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 want, to, I want to do exactly what Jesus says. Have you not read this one? Or have right. you not read this? Or... Uh, Basically, Jesus, you know, it works that way. In Luke 20 and 17, uh, Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? And he quotes a passage. So he's saying, Okay, what do you think this means? And he expected that man to have read it and to make an attempt to understand it. Right. And sometimes people were correct about what they, well, most of the time people were correct about what they thought it said. They just weren't doing it. They, they wanted, uh, it's clear. They wanted, well, particularly the... the, the you young. cannot take the Bible and come up with 37 different genders. Okay? Right. You can't right. do it. It's just not there. It's just not there. You can't come up with homosexual marriage in the Bible. I'm not saying you're the, uh, you're the epitome of Satan with horns if you believe that. But don't tell me that it's in the Bible. Because now, now just, it's not. It's, it's not any reading that you can make of any in integrity at all that has those kinds of things in the Bible, or that Peter was the first pope. That's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that, or salvation by faith only. We'll get even more serious to people here. Or, or that uh, Jesus, as it's taught, or Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. You know, basically those things. Or that Antichrist is Saddam Hussein, as has been taught by people uh, all in our generation. Uh, I don't know who he is today. I guess it's either Trump or Biden or somebody else's uh, is Antichrist. But I'm just, you can't find this stuff in the Bible, and yet people teach it as if it is, and they don't give people the plain sense of what the Scriptures are saying. They, they, uh, they come up with those kinds of things, and then they don't distinguish between this is what I think it means and, the, uh, and then what it does say. Um, Sorry, Gary, I well, jumped all in there, well, but I just like let, let's just take the Antichrist just just quickly. You know, you talk about the Antichrist, okay? And he is coming, or the implication is that he's one person, and that he's this person that's going to come at the very end of the world. And yet, he's only mentioned four times in Scripture, and two of those basically deny that it's one person. He says. The first one is First John 2.18. Little children, this is the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. 
basically he's talking about a last hour other than the end of the world here. He's talking about something else. And how many of them are there? There are many of them. And they've already come. And oh, wait. You know what? I'm sorry, Gary. I just re- realized that we have a phone call oh, okay. that I have missed. I didn't hear it come through. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is Jerry, are you still there? I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I didn't see that you were on the line. I apologize. That'll be fine. I appreciate your call and questions, Jerry. Uh, let's take the cuneiform writing uh, first. Cuneiform, C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M. Cuneiform, and you can go on the Internet and look at examples of this. It's, it's kind of wedge-shaped characters and triangles and other shapes. You might even call them runes type of writing, different alphabet than we use, uh, that's used in a lot of writing systems in Mesopotamia, which is what we would call Iran and Iraq today, Persia, uh, the the uh, Ugarit, all that area there, north of Israel, and so forth. And uh, they usually did it not on copper that I know of. Usually it was done on clay tablets. So they would take soft clay take some kind of a sharp pen-like instrument and write these letters in there, smooth it out, let it dry. Now, we have thousands upon thousands of examples of this kind of writing in storage and in museums all around the world. I've seen it several different times, uh, several different places. And uh, it covers everything from receipts that you would get when you bought some grain or a load of something or some cattle to the writings of various kings as they corresponded back and forth with different people to um, uh, different kinds of... uh, Just basically, that's how they wrote in ancient society. The interesting thing uh, about some of that is that from years and years ago, they would say that people like Abraham lived in a time before there was any such thing as writing, so therefore Abraham couldn't have done this or that or the other they even said that about Moses. Well, now they know all that's ridiculous. From the very earliest that we have any evidence of human beings being human beings, we have writing. And symbolic writing is just making symbols on paper or papyrus or stone or, or clay in some kind of symbolic way to represent something else. And so uh, certainly uh, the, at the time of Hammurabi, they uh, they had this cuneiform writing. Now it was different different languages were considered to be uh, cuneiform type of writing. But uh, Hammurabi's code. Now Hammurabi, if you want to look him up, we have some even images of him. Probably lived about 1800 BC. 1750 BC. Is that the numbers you're getting, Gary? Something like that. 1790. Yeah, right around there. And it's he was considered to be uh, in the first dynasty of Babylonian uh, kings. And um, there's different. We know who his father was apparently, and the ones that came after him. Now. You see, he's noted for his code. The code of Hammurabi, yeah, yes. Which he said he received from this Babylonian god that I don't know how to pronounce. Shamash? Yes. 
Chemosh, Shemosh. And, and basically he, he put it on a, a stone pillar of some kind that we have today. And from my understanding, the, the code is not tremendously different from basically the Ten Commandments or nine of the Ten Commandments that we see. Uh, there, there's some basic moral code that we have. Uh, it's uh, apparently it's apparently the first one uh, that we see is recorded. Uh, though you know it could. Uh, if you look at the Mosaic Law, I've seen dates for the Mosaic Law that are also in this same period. Yes. Now, a lot of people put the time of Moses at about 1450 B.C., right around there. Yeah, some of them go back But some go way back, 18, yes, yeah. close to the same time. Now, the idea is, well, maybe Moses copied this law. We have no indication of that whatsoever. Maybe that, that, that was the case. This law from Moses. Could who, be. Who knows? Uh, or, or both of these law. I, more likely to me, Gary, is that both of these ancient codes uh, were based on the original law given to men at the beginning, which the patriarchs, it says in Romans 2, basically was the law of their own nature. From the beginning, how did Cain know it was wrong to murder his brother? He had to have had some revelation from God or a code. Or how would how, how would the people know how, how to punish would, him? How would people know how to punish him if they right. caught him? You know, right. So there was obviously laws in place that I think the Bible says came from God at the creation of man, and it's possible that Hammurabi was at least at the present time was one of the first that we have any record of. Because for a long time we didn't have any record of Hammurabi, so Moses would have been the first. You know, I mean, it just depends on who, depends what when on you find stuff and the dates are correct. Are correct or not. Right. It, it's, and, and but I honest. think it reflects that early law that God gave, and it's not that different. It wasn't like Moses, that the law of Moses was something that no one had ever heard of before. The idea that it's wrong to kill, to steal, to lie. to lie. These are what were there for men from the beginning. Even the Gentiles who didn't have the law of Moses, I know that they had a law that told them those things were wrong because the New Testament in book of Romans chapter 1 condemns the Gentiles for those very things that were, and they were never accountable to the law of Moses. So they had a law that reflected all of those kinds of things. They didn't have a law that said keep the Sabbath day and offer this sacrifice on this day, but the law of the Ten Commandments that apparently they had something very much like that. Now, now here's, what the, here's what Moses' law did that was different, and I think some would say that um, some would say that Hammurabi's law also did this. The purpose of these laws was to limit what an individual could do to punish someone else for a crime. They said, if your man steals your ox, then here's the penalty for that. You cut off his hand or whatever. And Hammurabi's penalties were very severe from our modern standpoint. But what they probably were, from what we know about them, is they were limitations upon what people could do. A man steals your ox, you don't get to disembowel him and hang him on a tree. He gets to right. pay you so much restitution 
or whatever the case may be. And really, Gary, this is the big misunderstanding of the law of Moses as it's come down to us by people. Strangely enough, our scholars and, and legal scholars and literary people and our, our university people have never actually read or thought about the law of Moses. But what the law of Moses did, which seems so severe to us, when it said, you shall have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this is not some kind of cruel law that was meant to impose severe penalties and endorse revenge, as if people never had revenge before that, but Moses let them take revenge on people, oh, an eye for an eye. Moses' law was a humane law that was limiting what could be done. There were no police forces, no courts as we know them, no innocent until proven guilty until Moses came along. And I preached about this about a year and a half ago in some sermons. If you want to go on our website, wearejustchristians.com, you can find some sermons about the Bible and the Constitution on there, and you'll see, you can hear me talk about this at length. But, the, but Moses' law said, this is the penalty. If a man breaks out your tooth, you can't do anything more to him than would be equivalent to breaking out his tooth, although it didn't really allow that kind of penalty. If a man steals your horse, you get to do this, not go and, as I say, put out his eyes and disembowel him. You don't get to do that, as angry as you might be. Here's what the code is. So an eye for an eye was a system of justice, not revenge and retribution in an extreme way. This is the point that we often miss. Because our, our now when Christ comes along, he removes that idea of individual vengeance. He removes it from the individual, gives it to the state, and even tells the state to be, based on the Bible standards, fair and just. And have to have two. They have to have two witnesses for any kind of crime like that at all. So these codes and Hammurabi is probably a reflection of that idea, of them limiting the natural revenge and retribution that people would feel in some legal code that everybody had to go by. It was a big step forward, probably in Babylonian society. But it only reflected, I think, God's law from the beginning. It wasn't like Moses changed God's basic law of morality when he gave the Ten Commandments. He put it in a code that everybody had to go by so they could all, under, once again, so they could read it and understand it, and everybody was going to do the same thing. So anyway, sorry, Gary, I, I well, went no, off on it. It's interesting to me that, that uh, part of this, apparently Hammurabi in that part of Babylon came from or originated in uh, what was generally known as the Amorites. Uh, basically, they would have been in contact with the, with the children of Israel. Right. And right. so there would have been contact there to basically for them to see the Mosaic Law if, if some of these dates are not in the right order. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I've, I've read so many dates that I don't have a lot of confidence that we know a lot of these things within just a few years. Oh, we don't know them within a few years. That's why they give a range. And and there have always been this basic fundamental disagreement between more conservative scholars and more liberal scholars about the dates. The liberal scholars want to make everything closer to our time because, because it removes the idea of prophecy. 
and that these people were advanced because those people believe in evolution and so that they were actually advanced way back then. But um, so you'll have that. The more the more liberal dates for the Exodus and Moses are about 1450 down to maybe 1250. <clears throat> and the more conservative dates start about 1800 and go down to about 1500. I've always just used 1500 as a round number for people not teaching it as if it is something that the Bible would confirm per se, but it's probably there and backwards from there somewhat. Well, if you if you assume Abraham around 2000 and then the literal 400 plus year, 430 years right. in Egypt, then you come down to about 1600, and then it does make sense. It it, it dovetails into Solomon, Saul, David, and Solomon at about a thousand, and and that right. date might be right. pretty good. We know the date of the destruction of the temple yeah. from uh, uh, in 586 yeah. from secular sources and dovetail, as you say, dovetailing those together. Right. Um, now, go, go, I want to make up. We got a, t- a tweet about the fact that cuneiform writing was. We have a lot of that because it, it was a more permanent form of preserving writing. Or over papyrus or linen or other things, and that's true. We have more of that stuff, e- even older stuff, because it was written on these more or less stone well, or it was clay tablets. Clay, and when these cities were destroyed, hard. And burned, the clay got kind of fired. And, a lot of it did, yeah. And, and it, it preserved it more than. than and then sometimes the kings just took a piece of granite or something and carved this cuneiform into that. Although cuneiform was used more for everyday purposes, which makes it interesting to see. What we, we know what they were paying in their money for a bale of hay or whatever the case may be because all these receipts and contracts were written down. Um, when we went through my mother's stuff, which was really my grand my mother and father's stuff, my brothers and I did a few years ago, and uh, we, went, we went through, they had many of my, of my grandfather and grandmother's things and paperwork, and I found my grandmother's original Social Security card which would have been the original Social Security cards because <laughs> right. she was a grown woman when Social Security came into play there and so forth. And But one of the things we found was a paper, a piece of paper written in hand, the handwriting there, where my grandfather had purchased a mule for, I think, $100, which was a lot of money at that time, from one of his neighbors. And it said to replace the mule killed in the fire. They'd been burned out three times, something like this. So that that was handwritten. Now, I have that, or one of my brothers does. Will that be here in a thousand years? Uh, Probably not. Pretty doubtful. If we had carved, if we had t- taken a wet piece of clay and carved that in there, or he had, and fired it, as you say, now they would be here maybe in a thousand years. Well, but, it's the same. We went back with my grandmother, and we found the deeds and abstracts to the property that she had inherited from her father that goes back to when her great-grandfather bought that property in 1855. So it basically uh, basically it's still in my family today so since 1855 so we're we're approaching 200 years but we're not there yet. You know my now John uh, we appreciate your text today John very much but he made he makes a good point here uh, that I was trying to make and didn't think of this scripture. But Noah was called a righteous man. Yes. Now, on what basis of the 
was Mo Noah a righteous man? That was well before the law of Moses or the Torah had been given. Or, or even Abraham was before the law of Moses. <laughs> right. He was considered he, a righteous. So he was righteous by some standard, which would have been this original covenant that God made with human beings. Or Melchizedek. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. Of, all of those characters. So there had to be some standard, because unless there's a standard of righteousness, uh, you can't be righteous or you can't be a sinner. And yet the God destroyed the world of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were great sinners. The law of Moses had not been given. So this is this is why I'm saying the code of Hammurabi was probably reflective of that original moral code that was given to man at the beginning. And and basically God destroyed the world of Noah because of the unrighteousness of all the people. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There had to be some standard that God was using, and it's reflected. The problem is we don't know the exact enumeration well, of that law. I think what that standard was the word of God, but he didn't write it down for us to transmit it. He told them directly. Well, and that's what he, that's what uh, Hebrews that's 1 means, that God in various times and in sundry manners revealed his word to the fathers by the prophets, but today he has spoken to us in his son. Right. So we so, have the words of the son. They had what God revealed to the fathers through the prophets, even before Moses came along, came on the scene. So the word of God judged, judged them just as Jesus says the word of God is going to judge us. It's just that the recording of it in the form that we have it today is not the same. Right, right. And it wasn't recorded for us to read. Yeah, but we can infer a lot we of what it was based what on what he says. That's, what, that's the point I'm making. I changed in all that. Period. No, the fundamental what moral code has not changed. And, and uh, that's the part that we have to understand because humans have always been accountable to God for those things and still are. And so uh, whether a person goes to church, somehow we think a person doesn't go to church, they're not accountable to God's moral law. That only people that go to church are accountable not to commit adultery and not to lie and not to steal. And somehow in the back of our minds, I think pe people live like this, that if they just stop going to church, they won't have to be accountable to not get drunk and commit fornication. Or if I ignore God, he'll ignore me. Yeah, I'm not accountable because that, that law is only for church people. Well, nothing could be wrong, more wrong than that. Uh, Gary, we got about a minute left. Our time is gone uh, for a lot of discussion this morning, but we really appreciate those who have commented, those who have called in or texted in. We thank you so much for that. hope you'll make it a point to tune in every week to We Are Just Christians. And We'd like to invite you, as we close the show, to take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. There you'll find recordings of these radio shows and the sermons at the church you can listen to for your edification. And we'd like you to invite you to come and be with us here at our building at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard in Port St. Lucie at 10, 11, and 7.30 on Wednesday night. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you until next week. WPSL Port St. Lucie.